Hello, my dear listeners. Welcome to episode two of season two of Spilling Chai, coming to you from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain. Today, we have a very special episode for you because not only is our guest a fellow Bangladeshi woman, but when I think of fearless journalism, this is who I think of. I am talking about award-winning journalist and producer, Tanya Rashid. Rashid's work primarily focuses on human rights and women's issues. And you have seen her amazing reporting on Al Jazeera English, CNN International, PBS NewsHour, NBC News, the National Geographic Channel, Mike, Channel 4 UK, and Vice News. After working for Al Gore's global TV network, Current TV, and watching female pioneers in the industry thrive, Rashid knew she wanted to take her career to the next level. So she went to Columbia University to get her master's in broadcast journalism and documentary. Rashid's breaking story was at Al Jazeera English, where she was the first female journalist on the ground during the collapse of Rana Plaza, the largest industrial disaster in the history of Bangladesh, which killed thousands of garment factory workers. Rashid also followed the life of sex workers, toxic tanneries, and child marriage in Bangladesh, and her work has also taken her abroad to South Africa, India, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and she joins us today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Tanya. Hi, Anushay. How are you? Girl, I'm here. <laughs> I am so excited to talk to you. <laughs> I've been, you know, I've been listening to your podcast religiously and my so good. Thank you. I hope the next season is going to be even better. We're going back to all brown girl and black girl magic and leaving the white guys out. I had to put in some token white guys. You know how it works. No, (laughs) No, it was really good. Especially my favorite one was with Bilal, your childhood friend. Oh, my college friend. Yeah. The first episode, huh? Phenomenal. He's the best. He's really the best. He's so honest and candid, you know? Well, this was all him. This was all his idea. Really? Oh, yeah, he's the best. Oh, I miss him so much. He and his husband moved to Dubai. They're working for the State Department. Oh. Well, his husband is. He isn't. Okay, I know you are very busy, so let's get to it. I have like eight questions. I'm recording this. Are you ready? Yes, I'm excited and honored. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. So, you are honestly one of the most authentically fearless and honest people I know. Where do you get those qualities from? Wow. Well, thank you. Same goes back to you, Anushe. We are one of the few Bangladeshi women in this media industry. So, to see you on the screen, actually, I was playing some of your clips for my dad this morning, and he was just blown away. He said, Wow, another Bangladeshi girl's doing it. Um, <laughs> so he was really excited to see you. <laughs> Thank you, following your lead. But you know, what inspired me is part of my childhood was in Saudi Arabia. And another part of it was in Bangladesh. I was born in Saudi. And so in Saudi Arabia, I saw my mom. She wore burqa, couldn't go out without my dad for simple tasks, like going to the grocery store, she couldn't drive. My access to the larger world was through my dad. And when I looked at my mom, I thought of a prisoner. So seeing that at such an early age and experiencing that really 
kind of shaped my view. Like I was asking questions at five years old about those things, you know? And in Bangladesh, when we moved back to Bangladesh, as a child, I saw other things, atrocities, you know? There's a custom I'm sure, of course, you know about where we keep maidservants in the house. And I had seen some relatives who I won't call out <laughs> do, do some really atrocious things. And that abuse, that physical abuse, yeah. torture. And I think it's, I don't know where it comes from. Sometimes I wonder if it comes from our imperialistic legacy, but this behavior of owning a person and treating them less than human, just really, you know, as a kid, just watching it over and over again, seeing things, and not to mention the poverty back in the 80s. Bangladesh is developing rapidly now, but back then it was, it was pretty rough. And then seeing that and then traveling from there to Utah of all places, because my dad had his immigration, he immigrated there for his education. And my mother and I joined him. And then not knowing English and then growing up also very young in an environment where I was otherized very quickly in school. I was probably the only brown Muslim girl there. So all of these, I mean, these, these few experiences, I think these are like milestones in my life that kind of shaped my character and drew me to stories that weren't being covered by mainstream media. I felt like I had a voice and a new perspective to share that nobody was really thinking about. You write that quote, I always dreamed of being like Christiane Amanpour. When I would watch her on television, I would think, that's me. I want to be that person. Growing up in Saudi Arabia, it's a very isolating part of the world. And I saw firsthand what it's like for women to be oppressed, including my mother. Then I lived in Bangladesh. Growing up in these environments pushed me towards my career in covering stories on women's issues. What have been some of the most personally powerful stories that you've worked on? Oh boy, that's a loaded question. I have to ask it. Spill the tea. <laughs> <laughs> so personally, 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 I was, hmm, there's so many. I would say I was personally most impacted by my time in the largest mega brothel of South Asia, Dolodia, which happens to be in Bangladesh. I spent a lot of time there. And what was interesting about my reporting there was people looked at me, I'm Bangladeshi, right? So I wore Salwar kameez and everything when I went into these worlds. And it was almost like I was an anthropologist looking in and experiencing what it's like rather than being this benevolent, you know, parachute reporter that's like an outsider going into the world, right? I think that's a skill and, and, and something I carry with me. So I went in and a lot of the times these men mistaken me for being a sex worker. Yeah. You know? And so like that feeling, that visceral feeling of, oh my goodness, like they see me as this piece of meat. Really just that feeling just added so much passion to my story. So in that particular piece, we explored the lives of these really young girls who were tricked into having jobs outside of rural Bangladesh, but then end up in these brothels where they're paid like a dollar a day, you know, a dollar per client actually to have, you know, do these sexual acts. And some of these girls were 13, 12 years old. And my rage 
of seeing that. I had so much rage that I wanted to see every nitty gritty detail of the process. I interviewed these clients who slept with these young girls. I questioned them. I interviewed the pimps who trafficked these young girls into the brothels. And I also interviewed a madame who happens to be like the head ringleader managing all the, all the girls. So yeah, just going into these worlds where you, it hits home for you, right? It's just like, wow, like this could have been me. This could have been me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. You're reporting there for Vice. I mean, before I even knew you, I think, I mean, because I was such a fan. I still am such a fan, but that was some of the most powerful reporting I've ever seen. I actually still go back and sometimes watch those, watch those videos of your reporting because it's so powerful and haunting. And yeah, like you say, it, it really, it could have been us. You have also done some of the most early and in my opinion, really the most important reporting on the Rohingya refugee crisis in Bangladesh. Tell me about that time that you were traveling, <laughs> you know, when you were on the boat going to the island that the Bangladeshi government had kind of allocated for the refugees, which was basically a pile of mud in the middle of nowhere, which was sinking. And you got really sick. I think you either got dengue or something. And tell me more about that assignment, because you actually thought that you might die. Oh, my gosh, you have such good memory. Yeah, I, think <laughs> I told you about that story a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I, so yeah, I was actually, what I, I don't want to label myself, but I was one of the first reporters. Like there, there were a few of us on the ground when, when that mass exodus happened. And I happened to be one of the few from the front line reporting as it happened. But prior to that, I had, you know, the sixth sense feeling that something was brewing. You understand this. When you're studying a region and a conflict for so long, you can tell when something's about to pop off or click. So I went to my editors at PBS NewsHour and I said, look, I need to go to this remote island. I have a feeling something's going to happen there. It hasn't happened yet. Something's going to happen on this island. And beyond this island, I think something else is going to happen. I don't know what it is yet, but something's going to happen. So I basically hired a small team to take me to this island, which is located in the middle of nowhere in the Bay of Bengal. Got on the boat, got to the island, well, no, let me tell you the journey to the island. So we're on the boat and it's this rinkety boat that, you know, fishermen generally use. It's not meant to travel across the Bay of Bengal into a remote island. Let me tell you that. It's not equipped for that. There was no shade. The sun was scorching hot. I could feel myself physically melting. And I asked my local producer, I said, you know, could you please fetch me some water? Turns out that everyone had drank most of the water. So there was no water left. And by this point, I think I'm on my sixth hour of the boat ride. And there were these high, high tides. So we, I think we went underwater, almost went underwater a few times. The boat almost capsized. And so it was just these strong waves. The boat's like going up and down, up and down. There's no water scorching sun. Before I knew it, I, I threw up, passed out, and started hallucinating. And my camera operator had to carry me off the boat by the time we made it to the island. And I was, he said, my lips turned blue, my fingers are blue. I could feel myself dying. God. This is the sad part of the story. You know, I asked for help from certain people on the island. There were some officials there. And it helped a little bit, but more could have been done. 
I literally had my, my camera operator begged them to let me get some water for him to get some water for me. And he filled up the empty water bottles and realized I had a heat stroke. I think they dumped like nine gallons over my head. And then I finally woke up. But I could feel myself dying, literally, Anushe. It was just, I, I felt this dreamlike detached moment. Like I felt my body melting into the ground. Wow. And so anyway, so then I woke up and I started reporting. <laughs> I started, you know, asking the, the officials on the island questions about the island. I tried to get access. I was trying to fight for access and then they kicked us out. And then I had to get back on that rinkety boat. Oh my goodness. And I slept in the boiler room. <laughs> oh my God. And it was another seven hours of this arduous journey. And by the time I got back, I called my editor at NewsHour. I said, look, we couldn't get access, but I have a plan B. And let me tell you, in deep down inside of myself, I was shaking. I was just like, man, am I, I almost died. Am I insane to go back to the island? But something inside told me that this time, you know, we're going to go with a better plan, have lots and lots of water, you know, shade, a better boat. And we went the second time around and actually made it onto the island, which was another journey in itself. But thankfully, I, I survived and I got at the end of the day, I got the story that we were looking for. Wow. Oh, my goodness. You were lucky because this was a heat stroke, right? It could have been like typhoid or cholera or worse. It could have been worse. Yes. It was an almost fatal heat stroke. And heat strokes can be really dangerous. I didn't really think of it that way till it happened to me. Yeah, you can die from one man. <laughs> well, it sounds like you almost did. What a warrior. Oh my God, I wouldn't have made it. So as you know, and what we're living through this hell right now, but Trump has really brought this country to the brink in so many ways. How are you feeling about America right now? Do you think we're going to survive Trump? Oh my goodness. Uh, I feel like, I feel like we are... You know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with a friend about this. And the thing that strikes me most about this situation is what I had seen, you know, I've, I've worked in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, covering armed rebel militia groups. I've, you know, done some things in South Asia. And what I am seeing here, it's similar to what I've been seeing in those worlds that I've covered. And when my parents came to America, it was this American dream of, this first world nation that people or governments across the world aspire to be or look up to, to some degree. And to see just what it's turned into, I mean, it's reared its ugly head. I think we're in a really dangerous place in society right now where we are living in a deeply polarized nation. Yeah. You know, and, and it's really showing itself. And I think Trump is really, he has his base. And he's exciting and amplifying his base. And I honestly didn't think they were that strong, but boy, was I wrong. It's, it's, it's a really dangerous moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of surreal, especially, you know, coming from countries like Bangladesh. Like sometimes I feel like my American friends are being really naive. You know, there was a great Farhad Manju wrote this fantastic New York Times op-ed last week where he said that because he's from South Africa, like he knows political instability and how like the lights are flashing red and he's like getting ready for doomsday, but his American wife really isn't kind of understanding what, what's going on because they've never, they've never seen it. They've never known what it's like to have to leave your country. 
Absolutely. Yeah, my father, it's funny you say that. My father, he's preparing for doomsday, actually. He's been watching, you know, the coverage on Trump religiously. And he said to me the other day, I never imagined my father would say such a thing. And he said, uh, if Trump gets reelected, I'm out of here. I'm not going to stay here. And this is the man who chased the American dream, came here in the 1980s, started from nothing and built something out of his life. And he's questioning his life here. I'm right there with your dad. Unbelievable. Actually, I have a doomsday plan. It's Bangladesh for two months. <laughs> Spend some time with my family and then hello, New Zealand. <laughs> Once they lift the ban on, on American passports, that is. <laughs> so some lighter good news, kind of. Uh, what does Kamala Harris's nomination mean to you, especially at this specific, you know, really white supremacist moment in American history. What is it like for you to see a woman of color on the on the VP ticket? And do you think she's a good role model for brown girl magic? Absolutely. I When I saw her on the screen, I started to cry. Our voices, look, Anushe, we both battle this. We, as brown girls, we battle being often invisible in the mainstream media. Nobody really knows about us. You know, we know about the Hassan Minaj, the Aziz Ansaris, the, you know, these brown boys who are making it happen. But there's so few women that are seen on the mainstream platform. So to see Kamala Harris, you know, she's half South Asian and Black. And to see that on the screen, for me, that was just a moment of, wow, we're not invisible. We're being seen and heard right now. So for me, she represents that, that voice and that presence that has been so marginalized, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's really like a clash between like the old America and the one that we romanticize and the good America and then everything I think Trump. But then you look at Nikki Haley and you're like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> but it was always like that with Nikki. Nikki's real name is like Nandita or something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nikki's a long time gone. Toodles to Nikki. Okay, so you said that it was current TV where you learned cutting edge storytelling and where you found your powerful female journalists like Mariana Van Zeller and Laura Ling, you know, women who ended up writing your letters of recommendation to Columbia's J School. You said that, quote, they encouraged me to go because they could see how hungry I was to be like them. Later, when I came to Columbia, I learned to be like myself. I love that quote. Why is it so hard for amazing women like us <laughs> to be our authentic selves and have the confidence to do so while mediocre white guys like Jared Kushner and Stephen Miller are out there like living their best lives with no they never second guess themselves. What is going on? Well, because there is an unfair system in place that doesn't give people like you and me, first of all, the opportunity. You have to fight tooth and nail to get the, these opportunities and prove yourself. So yeah, in the beginning, I thought, oh my gosh, I want to be like them. I want to be like them. And then when I went to J school and I made this film, I did my thesis project on my identity and the film explored, you know, being Bangladeshi, being a woman, being an immigrant and all those things. It was just full circle for me. It was a full circle moment. And I realized, oh my gosh, I have a story to tell and I'm damn powerful. So then after I graduated Columbia, immediately I had this gut feeling. I only had $200 in my pocket, Anushe. Packed my bags, moved to Bangladesh, stayed in this apartment with this Australian expat women. And 
my room was the size of a closet. I slept on the floor and I just started cold calling all these channels. Like I called Al Jazeera, I called CNN, every, anyone you can name up saying, hey, I'm a recent Columbia grad. I'm here in Bangladesh. What do you need? I can help you. And in the beginning, you know, I worked as a, as a fixer. I, by the way, I really hate that word. And I keep hearing it in the industry over and over again. Yeah, it's very common in the industry. Talk to us about fixers and who they usually are on the ground for. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I worked as a fixer and I was called a fixer. So I can tell you from firsthand experience what that means. And being a fixer is someone who basically gets the story for these parachute reporters coming in who often don't have an idea or knowledge about the landscape of what they're covering. So my job was, for instance, I worked with this Italian journalist and got him into the Tangail brothel where I sorted out his logistics, interviewed, helped him interview the girls. I was next to him as he interviewed them. I was kind of like his eyes and ears, really reporting. And then at the end of the day, I get the credit, credit as a fixer. And then there were other local journalists that I was working with on the ground who also worked with these reputable organizations. I won't name this particular one, but there's this one guy I met with him. And he told me that he ended up doing all the reporting on this really important story in the field while the reporter who parachuted in, happens to be a white guy, sat in this hotel room the entire time and was fed this information from this particular local journalist who didn't even receive a byline and was considered a fixer. So fixer generally are people with our skin color. They look like us. And I feel like it's a very imperialistic, it's part of this imperialistic system within the media where we are seen as just that, this less than, but, but we're actual reporters on the ground with insight and knowledge that they probably do not have. So yeah, that term is so infuriating. So the, I went from being a fixer and fighting my way through this industry and claiming a name for myself where I'm like, no, I, I refuse to be called that. And I refuse to have any of my other colleagues be called that. It's demeaning. It's not respectful. And it's a way of otherizing particular group of people from that part of the world. Oh, gosh, totally. Oh, thank you. And it's, it's so true. It's, it's essentially, it's really racist. You can trace it back really to like the colonial days where like the British would have like their munchies on the ground, you know, their translators, their teachers who really connect them with the culture and the sources there. And then you get all the credit and you bounce. Some things never change. Okay. Last question. So what are you working on now? What's making you want to spill the chai? <laughs> well, I told you about my sad news. I was supposed to join NBC News on this new venture where they were going to launch this international channel. And I was supposed to be in Mumbai right now working as their South Asia correspondent. But due to the pandemic, it's unfortunately not happening anymore. But, you know, the fight continues. And I'm, I'm fighting for my place, and as I have been before. And right now, I'm, I'm working with Vice World News. I'm back at Vice. And we're working on a project on black market operations happening in South Asia. I can't spill too much of the details on it yet. But it is going to be really eye-opening, the things that I'm discovering on this piece. 
Yeah, so that's what I'm working on at the moment. That is really exciting. It's such an education to have you on the interview, especially for other women of color and brown women and girls, you know. What is your advice to them? How do you thrive as a woman of color? Because it is so hard. What is your advice? How do you do it? (sighs) I think, number one, own your story. Everyone has a story to tell, but we do too. As brown girls, our stories and experiences are different. Really owning and understanding those stories, reflecting on those stories and how they shape you to who you are today. That's number one, owning your story. Number two, being your authentic self. Be you. At the end of the day, that's what's going to shine. Don't try to be like someone else. That's what I thought in the beginning. I thought, oh, I want to be like these people. Me too. But the truth is, I needed to be me. And the moment I owned myself and my story, doors opened. Because you know what? So confident. And I fought for myself. And I'm continuing to fight for myself today. Fantastic. Tanya, I love you. Thank you so much. No problem. My pleasure, Anushe. Stay in touch. We have heard so much about the need for diversity in America's newsrooms, a conversation that actually gained some much-needed momentum in the aftermath of the brutal killing of George Floyd. But it seems like the media still doesn't get that it's not just about ticking off boxes, but about the perspective we gain when more diverse people are present in the newsroom. How does our outlook on the news change when we have more women of color, like Tanya Rashid, present, whose background demands that we explore what the mainstream media overlooks. If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite, favorite streaming app. And as always, please follow us on social at Spilling Chai Podcast, where you can stay up with all the latest news on the show. Thank you so much for tuning in, my dear listeners. You guys are really the best. Until next time, let's keep brewing the chai. Chai.